0: good morning. Good to be with you on this Lord's Day. If you would turn to 1 John chapter 2, we continue our study through this epistle, this letter. Um, If you're visiting with us for the first time or you've just come back from holidays, uh, we are in chapter 2 already, and we've been been learning from John about the assurance of our salvation, and he's been teaching us that true believers, true Christians are those that obey the Word of God, and true Christians are those that, that love as Christ loved, and of course he's um, concerned about proving to us what a true Christian is, but also not giving that that false assurance um, that so many unbelievers in churches have today. So in our passage this morning, John has a a twofold purpose for us. Of course, he he wants us to be assured of the salvation. He doesn't want us to be doubting this salvation that comes from the Lord. But he is also at the same time concerned that those who are not Christians but who think they are wouldn't have a a false assurance that that they shouldn't have. Now that's a hard thing to do at the same time, um, and John knows that. He doesn't want us to be doubting our salvation, especially those who are true believers. He doesn't want to be casting this doubt. So the passage this morning we come to is actually a passage where where John pauses, and he recognizes the, um, the undercuts that the false salvation of, of false Christians have, and he's not intending to... To make us doubt. In fact, he wants us to be certain of the state of our, of our hearts. And so he pauses here in First John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to verse 14. He pauses here to give us a very important word of assurance. An important word of assurance to the humble and to the faithful believers of the local congregations that are there that he is writing to. And of course, remember, John is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And his words are not only applicable to the local congregations he was writing to, but they are applicable to us today as well, um, in all congregations everywhere. So this is God's word, and it is his word for us as well this morning. So we're going to look at the passage today, verse 12 to verse 14, and consider what John has to say about this issue of assurance. So we will read from verse 1, if you would follow with me, 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray before we go into the passage this morning. Lord, this is your word that you have for us this morning, and you show us that this is your word in many ways. Your Holy Spirit testifies to our hearts that this is the word of God, but you have also testified to us that this is your word by many remarkable signs which anyone with eyes open can see in the world. We know this is your word, Lord, because it's so applicable and relevant for us today. And in this passage before us, O oh God, we have such an instance where you address the issue of assurance, an issue which many, most, In fact, all of us have wrestled with from one time to another. So we thank you, Lord, for your ever-truthful and ever-practical word. We pray that you would speak to our hearts today. Enable us to receive it and to believe it and to live by it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A group of first graders had just completed a tour of a hospital. And the nurse who had directed them was asking for questions. And immediately a hand went up. And one little boy asked, How come the people who work here are always washing their hands? After the laughter had subsided, the the nurse gave a very wise and simple answer. And she said, They are always washing their hands for two reasons. Number one, they love health. And number two, they hate germs. I think that's a wonderful illustration of what John is trying to to do in this book. The only way we can live a truly healthy and joyful Christian life is if, number one, we hate sin. We've been seeing that over and over again as as the Puritan Thomas Watson keeps reminding us. Till sin be bitter... Christ will not be sweet. And the Apostle John tells us clearly in chapter 2, verse 1, I'm writing this to you that you may not sin. In other words, he doesn't want us to get sick. He wants us to stay well. He wants us to avoid these germs. And then in chapter 2, verse 26, 26, he, he says, I write this to you about those who would deceive you. So he's warning us about these um, germs that will infect us and destroy us. He's warning us of the danger of false teaching that has been creeping into the churches. He says, watch out for these germs. He's saying, don't get sick. And as I said previously in our passage this morning, John is pausing, so he's recognizing that even as he exposes the false salvation of many false Christians and as he exposes the false teachers who claim to be walking in the light but are still in darkness, it can have an unattended effect. It can make true believers a little insecure or a little uncertain about their own state of their their hearts about their own state of their salvation. And so he pauses here a moment to address this. He pauses here a moment to give an important word of assurance to those who are truly saved. In our passage this morning, John points to the basis of our assurance. He points to some of the measurable grounds of this assurance we can have in and through Christ. So three things I want to look at this morning and the title of my message this morning is simply A Word of Assurance. And I have three points if you're taking notes. The first point is Christians are forgiven. And we will see that in verse 12. And then my second point is in verse 13 Christians have overcome the evil one. Christians have overcome the evil one. And then my third point is in verse 13 and verse 14. Christians know the eternal word, Jesus Christ. Christians know the eternal word, Jesus Christ. So let's start with our first point this morning in verse 12. Christians are forgiven. Christians are forgiven for Christ's sake, and as a result, they know the Father. Let's look at verse 12 and at the end of verse 3. John says the same thing. He repeats himself, and he does it as a way of emphasis. As a way of emphasis, just like your teachers would repeat certain sentences in the classroom, they do it to make an emphasis of the point they are making. And he does this a lot in our passage this morning. At the end, at, in verse 12 and at the end of verse 3, John says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for your name's sake. He goes on to say at the end of verse 13, I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. Now John is addressing three categories here. And the first category is to the the little children. And they are just um, a group of people who are still believers, but are new in their faith. They are new in their faith. They are young Christians. And he's pointing us to, of course, the... Objective ground of our assurance, and he points to God's work of forgiveness. This is clearly the, the theme of this passage here that our salvation is in Christ alone. It is Christ's forgiveness which is the assurance of our salvation. This is not something that we have done, it's not something that we have earned. Now, this is important because so far he's been talking about something in us. That is a response to God's grace. He's been talking about obedience. He's been talking about love. These practical things which we are to be doing as believers. But now he's talking about something that we don't do. Something that only Christ can do. Our love for one another did not cause God to love us. It's the result of having God loving us. Remember, while we were still in our sins... Christ died for us. So our love for God's commands do not cause God to love us. It's the result of having being loved by Christ first. Christ says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that's the result of Christ loving us first. But when he points to our life and to our love as evidence of assurance Those things alone are the basis by which we are assured. This is the basis. And we're going to struggle with assurance. As believers, if you're a true Christian, if those things alone are the basis by which we are assured, we are going to struggle. Simply because our love goes up and down. Our love fluctuates, doesn't it? Ask any husband or or wife in in the room this morning. The quality and the expression of, of your love in the best of marriages changes from day to day. It's not the same all the time. So if my assurance of my standing with God is based on how I feel, then I'm in trouble. If my assurance is based on how other Christians love me, then, then I'm in trouble. Because my feelings fluctuate. They go up and down. And so John is pointing us now away from those subjective evidences, those very biased evidences to, to God's work in our life which is not biased. This is objective. This is something outside of us. This is something that's not dependent on, on us or it's not influenced by, by our feelings or it's not influenced by our opinions. This is objective. This is something that God does. And he points in the very first place to God's forgiveness. Christians are forgiven people. And he says this objectively. And that work of God in forgiveness is the only ground, is the ultimate ground of our assurance. This is something completely outside of us. This is not something that we can do to get this assurance. Think of this. Forgiveness is not something in us. God is the one who does the the forgiving. God is the one who does the the justifying. He's the one who, who pardons us. He's the one who accepts us. He's the one who accepts us as righteous. This is not something that we have done at all. This is all in, in God's hands. And John points out this truth in this passage where he says, Your sins have been forgiven for, your, for His name's sake. And John, John's point is simply that Christians are not forgiven because of something that we have done. Not because we have earned God's forgiveness. Not because we were good at some point in our life and we, we earn favor with God. We're not forgiven because we deserve it in any way. Perhaps you were born into a Christian family. Perhaps you were taught the Ten Commandments at a young age. Perhaps you learnt half of the New Testament as a, as a child. That doesn't earn your salvation. We're not forgiven because we're different in some way from other people. Because we were born in another country where it was a a Christian country. We're not forgiven because of external factors. We've received the gracious, merciful forgiveness of God because of His work, not our work. We're forgiven because of Christ. We're forgiven because of His mercy shown to us. In other words, the basis of our forgiveness is outside Of us. And so our assurance of our forgiveness is also outside of us. It's in what God has done. And He's simply pointing us to what God has done in this passage. He's pointing us to the cross of Christ. And He points us to this fact that we are forgiven. He points us to this fact that that we are forgiven because of what Christ has done on the basis of our salvation. We just sang a wonderful song before the throne of God above. And the words of verse 2 read, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. To look on Him and pardon me. The sinless Savior is the one who died. Our salvation is outside of ourselves. It is in what Christ has done. Not in what we have done. We are forgiven because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we could go to many different types of hymns which celebrate this glorious reality that we were under our sins and when God forgave us he did not forgive us because of something that was good in us he forgave us because of Christ because of the work of Christ who was the sinless Savior who was the Messiah who lived a perfect life and died a perfect death. He is the one in which our penalty was was given to Him and His righteousness imputed to us. This is the basis of our salvation. And this is the basis of our assurance. Not in what we do, but in what Christ has done. And the result of this we see in the end of verse 13. Look there with me in your Bibles. It says, I have written to you children because you know the Father. Because you know the Father. So as you know the forgiveness of your sins, you experience the reality of a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And you experience all the benefits that come with having this Heavenly Father, and He is, and we are now His children. So Christians are forgiven. We are forgiven. That is, a, that is a, a vital reality that we need to understand. We are forgiven for Christ's sake. And we know the Father. And John is saying, I see your rejoicing. I see that you're rejoicing over the forgiveness of your sins. And that is a good thing. And I want to say to you that this forgiveness of sins is not something that you have done to earn in any shape or in any form. This is the ultimate basis of our salvation. You see, if there was something that we could have done to earn our salvation, then there's something that we could do to lose our salvation. But our salvation is not in us. It is secure in Christ. And He tells us that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. Our assurance of our salvation is in the work of Christ alone. And God promises to us in his word that he will receive us as sinners. Just this week we were talking about this in our, in our home group. And Krasendra, he said, as a young man, he thought that he had to get right with God by doing good things. He thought that he needed to get his life right before he came to God. He thought he had to give up all the bad habits that he was doing before God would accept him. And he started to, to do things in his life that he thought were pleasing to God, only to be disappointed at the end because he was a sinner and he kept on falling into the same sins. He could not overcome these, these habits without the grace of God. And only when he came to the Lord as he was, only when he came to the Lord desperate on his knees, Lord, I cannot change myself. I am a sinful man, and I need you to change me. Was he born again? And what a wonderful testimony that he shared with us, that he could not change his life. It was only Christ that could do that. And this is important for us to understand. Because I believe even in our churches, even in the Christian church, people are trying to change themselves. They're trying to earn their own salvation. And people will justify themselves. And they will say that they are right with God because of something external, something outside of what God has done. And they want to deal with their own sins by Number one, denying their sins. By justifying their sins. Saying that their sins are not really that bad. They're not as bad as, as Joe Smith. And they will compare themselves to other people rather than comparing themselves to the scriptures. And they won't deal with their sins. And the significance of their sins, they will avoid and, and try and um, justify. And God says, No! That is not how it's done. The beginning of Christian life is in the forgiveness of our sins. If you have not been forgiven, if your sins have not been forgiven, you are not a believer. You need Christ. And that means God is the one who saves those who are sinners. Remember in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21, when the angel Gabriel comes to Joseph, And he tells him, you're going to have a child, and you will name this child Jesus. Call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. That is the whole reason Jesus came to this earth. Not to make us healthy, not to make us wealthy, not to make us prosperous, but to forgive our sins. And if your sins have not been forgiven, then you don't have this assurance that John is talking about this morning. If you have tried to justify your sins, if you have tried to ignore your sins, if you have tried to make excuses for your sins, then you are not having this assurance because you are not saved. So the glory of Christ is in the fact that we are saved By the work that He has done. Not by the work that we have done. We're not saved because we are good. We're saved because Christ is good. Because Christ was perfect in every possible way. And how often have you spoken with a friend? How often have you shared the gospel with that friend? And and perhaps you've asked them, If you were to die today and stand before God... And he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? How often have you heard your friend say something like this? Well, I've tried to live a good life. I'm better than that murderer. I'm better than that bank robber. I've tried to live a good life. The Lord will recognize that. Just take that statement for a moment and and let's flesh that out a bit. Okay? Okay? Your friends are, are, basically, are basically saying this. That they believe that God saves people who are basically good. That's what they're saying. God saves people that are not bad, that are basically good. Who are trying to do well. As long as they try to do well, as long as they are sincere, God will save them. God will let them into heaven. That's what they're saying. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what the the scriptures are saying. Your friends can be as sincere as, as any of the saints. But they can be sincerely wrong. They can be sincerely wrong. And I want you to see that the gospel is not this. It's not that we are saved by things that we do. And I think that's what John is trying to emphasize here as well. This is not the gospel. God is the one who saves wicked, wretched sinners who come as they are. Who come as they are. He doesn't basically save good people. He saves sinful people. He doesn't save people who are trying to do better. He saves people who cannot do anything else. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, Verse 31 and verse 32, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you see yourself as someone who is good, you have no need for Christ. Christ came to save the sick. Those who think that it's enough to try hard to earn their salvation, it's enough to to just be moral, they don't understand the gravity of their condition. They don't understand the seriousness of their sins. If you don't see yourself as this wretched sinner, then you have no need for the Savior. You are your own Savior. We are forgiven not because we deserve it. We are forgiven not because we have earned it. We are forgiven not because there's something in us worth forgiving. God doesn't look at us and say, wow, look what a good person he is. Look how many people he has helped. Look how how much money she has given to the poor. God doesn't look at us and save us because of anything that we do. We are forgiven because it gives testimony to the grace of God, to the glorious character of God himself. And John says, I'm writing to you, all of you Christians, because you have been forgiven, not by anything you deserve. You've been forgiven because it pleases God to put on display the wonder and the glory of his grace. That's why you've been saved. When it says his namesake there, name simply means all that he is. That's what it means. All that he is. And his name means I am that I am. God says that. I am that I am. And God forgives us because it pleases him. Praise God for that. It pleases him. To display his glory in his forgiveness. In his forgiveness. And so John is saying, Look, I'm not questioning whether you are a Christian. I know you are children of God. I know you've been forgiven. I know you don't even feel worthy. But don't put your assurance in your feelings. It's been done so that God can get the glory. Rest assured, in His name, in His character, in His salvation, God's glory will be displayed. And now He says, you're all in the family, but we have to realize, of course, there are different degrees, different levels of maturity. And So if you feel like you're, you're way down at the beginning and you're a, a spiritual child... Don't think for a moment that you are not a Christian. Someone this week already said to me, they, they feel so bad because they don't even know where the books of the Bible are in the, in the Bible. And I said, don't, don't judge yourself. You know, make a conscious effort to learn the Scriptures, and we'll see that's what we need to do. But the Lord sees us as forgiven, no matter what level we are at. Don't deny the reality of what the Lord has done in your life for His name's sake. And don't diminish that wonderful gift of salvation that the Lord has done for His name's sake. John MacArthur says in his commentary, he says, Here the Apostle John is saying, I'm not talking about absolute perfection. I'm talking about direction. Progress. Look at the progress in your life. And as a Christian, there should be progress in your life. There should be that direction that you are aiming at, that goal that you are striving towards. You should be closer to the Lord next time, next year, this time, than you are at the moment. Strive for that. Strive to know the Word better. Strive to know God better. That is the direction we are going. So the Lord's not talking about perfection. He doesn't see that. And he tells us, even in 1 John, that if we say we're without sin, we are liars. And that's why we need to confess our sins. Because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the Lord's talking about direction here. He's talking about progress. That leads to my second point this morning. Christians have overcome the evil one. True believers have overcome the evil one. Now he goes on here to work out the the implications of this verse in um, 13 and 14. Look at the middle of verse 13. He says, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And then again at the end of verse 14 he says, I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So these are John's words to those that he calls young men in the faith. And he's speaking to those who are no longer children, no longer babes, but are are growing in their faith. They're still young believers, but they are, are growing in their faith. And here's how he characterizes them. He says, you have overcome the evil one. Those are strong words. In other words, these, this group of believers have experienced a definite break from the bondage of Satan. They've experienced this. To put it in the language of the Apostle Paul, he says in Ephesians 2 verse 5, they had been dead in sin, but now... They're alive to Christ. Um, Paul says in Romans 6 verse 6, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So in other words, this group has also been forgiven. They've also experienced this wonderful forgiveness. They've not only had the penalty of sin broken in their lives... That's what he's talked about in in verse 12. But they've had the, the power of sin broken in their lives. They've experienced this wonderful liberation from this power of sin. And these are strong words here. He speaks of Christians as having overcome the evil one. Now most of us, I'm sure, don't feel like we've overcome the evil one. Every single moment of the day. 24 hours a day I don't think anybody could say I've had victory every day this week and so this sounds strange to to our ears but, but Paul's point is this we have experienced deliverance not just from the penalty of sin but also from the power of sin remember the penalty of sin the wages of sin is death the Bible says the penalty of sin was to be burning in hell forever and ever. And because of Christ, we no longer have to worry about that. The penalty of sin. But now the power of sin is something that some of us struggle with. And so often we say, but look, there's this, there's this sin that, 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 it still, uh, that troubles me, that I'm still battling with. There's this cluster of of sins that that I've been praying about and fighting, fighting for the last 28 years. And I'm still fighting against them. And I don't feel like I'm having dominion over these sins. And what John is saying here is, relax. What John is saying here is, even these besetting sins remind us That we have been liberated from the bondage of sin. He tells us here, because there was a time where we were in darkness. He tells us that there was a time where we were slaves to those sins. There was a time where we loved those sins. There was a time where those sins didn't disturb us. There was a time where we couldn't care whether we did those sins or not. But now... Sin is bitter. Now sin is bitter. And we see our need for the Savior. And we love the gospel. And we preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. And because it becomes more important. And we are the ones who have been lifted out of this bondage. And we sorrow over our sin. We hate it. This is the group of Christians that John is addressing here. And John says, We are sanctified. Young people, young men, we are sanctified people. We've experienced deliverance not only from the penalty, but also the power of sin. And that's why he calls them strong here. He uses that word, strong. And that's why he says that they've overcome the evil one. Once they were weak, once they had no strength. Once they had no power, once they were helpless in their sin. But now, by the grace of God, they are fighting against this sin. Now, how have they been made strong? Well, John tells us that the word of God abides in them. It is the word of God that is abiding in these in these young men. Not so much the, the little children. They are still very ignorant when it comes to to their salvation. They have a wonderful enjoyment of the sacrificial love of God, but they are still a little ignorant. He's talking about these young men who have strength now. And these are the ones where the Word of God is living in them. They are reading the Scriptures. They are studying the Scriptures. They are abiding in Christ. The characteristic of a spiritual young man is a Christian who knows the Word of God. And the Word of God abides in them. They know what the Bible teaches. Not all of it, but they are striving. They are equipped with spiritual knowledge. Remember, a child is ignorant. The characteristic of a child is is ignorance. But the characteristics of a young man is knowledge. They they are learning doctrine. They are learning the doctrines of the the Bible. And they are enjoying getting to know God. Getting to know God. And by the help of the Holy Spirit, they are being built up in Christ. They are being built up in their faith. The Word of God dwells in them richly. As Christians, I think it's a tendency often to to look at these areas in our own lives where the power of sin doesn't look broken. And we tend to look at the glass half full and become despondent and become negative. And John is saying, it's almost impossible to appreciate the freedom that God has brought us because we are still very much in this battle. We are still very much part of this fight. We are still in this world and fighting against the devil and against the flesh and against the world. And this struggle will last until the day we die. And so John says, Christians, you have overcome the evil one. Remember this. But now you have launched a war against sin. Sin is bitter and you don't want anything to do with it. And you are fighting it. And you are strong. And Satan doesn't like that. And Satan will always be your enemy. But this freedom we have in Christ doesn't mean that now we just coast on as if everything is easy, as if we have no struggles. It means that we're in a war, folks. And he'll go on to talk about it later on in this chapter. He tells us not to love the world or the things in the world. He tells us not to have the desires for the flesh and the desires for the for our eyes and the pride of possessions, all these different things that that will attack us. He tells us to fight, to be strong. We're saved into a into a life of warfare, a spiritual warfare. See, the Christian life is not just enjoying fellowship with God. That's not what it's about. That's that's part of it. But it's also fighting the enemy. And we cannot do that unless we know the word of God. We cannot do that unless we are abiding in the scriptures. When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the sins within, how do you respond? When Satan tempts you to look at that woman walking down the road And he tempts you to lust. And Satan tempts you to give up on your marriage. And when Satan tempts you to hate somebody, how do you respond? We need to be abiding in the Word so that we can respond. We need to allow the Word of God to dwell in us richly so that we can take those promises and hold on to them and fight sin when we need to and claim those promises that are in the Scriptures. If you have ever wrestled with some sin in your life, praise God for that. The very fact that you hate your sin is a sign that you are saved. The fact that you hate your sin is a sign that you are a believer. Praise God for that. The fact that you are frustrated about your sin, praise God for that fact that you're fighting against it, it's not a sign of spiritual death. It's a sign of spiritual life. It's a sign that you are in the light, that you can see sin for what it is, and you are not happy with it. Dead people do not fight sin. Only those who are alive in Christ are the ones who hate sin. And that life comes through Jesus Christ. It comes because of Jesus Christ. So, spiritual young men, they know their doctrine, but they haven't reached that final stage of spiritual development because he also adds here another level that he calls fathers. That's the third category. And that leads to my third and last point. Christians know the eternal word, Jesus Christ. Christians know the eternal word, Jesus Christ. That is God incarnate who was from the very beginning. So one last thing he says. Look at the beginning of verse 13 and 14. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. So this is the third thing that John says. He speaks to young children. He points them to the the forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ and, and to the knowledge of the Father that flows through that forgiveness, from that forgiveness. And then number two, he points to those who are still young, these young men, and they're still growing in their faith, growing believers. And he points to the reality that God has has broken not only the the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. But here the third category he describes is mature believers. Mature believers in the Lord. And it's a wonderful description here. This is a, a beautiful description here. He says, They know him who has been from the beginning. So in other words, he's saying, here's a mark of grace. Here's a mark. Here's a test. True Christians are people who know the eternal word. People who know Jesus Christ. People who know God incarnate. They know the God of the Bible who was in the beginning and is, is with us today, is, is, is eternal. He says Christians know this eternal God. They know the eternal Word who is Jesus Christ. John MacArthur, he asked the, the question in his commentary. He says, Was the Bible written to give you information about God? Yes. What was the purpose of that information? And Paul summed it up in Philippians 3. That I may know him. The third stage of spiritual development is when you don't just know the doctrine, you know the God who revealed the doctrine. You live the doctrine. This is when your life becomes an experience of worship. This is when you get to the point where your soul is exhilarated in the knowledge of God. It's to intimately know God. You see, the false teachers were teaching things about Jesus that were in contradiction to what John was teaching. They were contradicting what God, of course, had revealed about Jesus Christ. So there were many people who were being deceived because they, they didn't know the Scriptures. They didn't understand the Bible. And John says, look, I can tell a true Christian I can tell a mature Christian because he doesn't believe what the false teachers believe. He's not easily deceived. He knows the God of the Bible. He knows the Jesus that's been revealed to us in the Scriptures. He knows that Jesus was before anything else. He knows that we were not evolved from some blob in the the ocean. He knows That God was there who formed this earth, who made us out of nothing. He knows that Jesus was from the foundation of the world. He didn't just evolve. There wasn't this big bang. He knows that the Lord Jesus Christ is co-eternal with God. He may not understand it perfectly, but he believes it. The Trinity. He knows that Jesus is from the Bible, the Messiah of God that we read about in the Old Testament that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He knows the Gospels. He understands that Christ is the Savior of the Gospels, the one who was from the beginning, the one who made the covenant with Abraham, the one who fulfilled that covenant when he came to this earth in the form of a man so that he could live a perfect life. And die a perfect death. He knows that Jesus is not just an invention; he's not just a philosophy. You know, there's nothing really different today. That's what Ecclesiastes tells us. There's nothing new under the sun. There are false teachers out there, even today, who have designed a, a God and packaged him in a way that makes them money. They've designed a God and marketed Him for their own selfish, perverted purposes. And if you're a baby Christian, you are vulnerable. You are vulnerable to these false teachings. You are vulnerable to these false doctrines. You may be enjoying the forgiveness of your sins. and You may be enjoying Christ's unconditional love for you, but you are vulnerable. I remember in India, this lady who was retired, but a young Christian, a babe in the faith, she told me she had been watching this television program, and um, this tele-evangelist told her to sow a seed of money, and she would reap a hundred times more. So she took Two and a half thousand rupees from her pension, which was a lot. She was only getting ten thousand rupees. And she took two and a half thousand rupees from her pension, wrote a check, and sent it to this ministry. And she turned to the back of her Bible and she pulled out the check. And she said, Pastor, I don't understand. They sent their check back to me and they said, It's not enough. They want more. Have I done something wrong? That they won't accept this, this gift that I'm giving to them. I mean, there was such a sincere lady who, who was enjoying the unconditional love of God, but she was deceived. She was vulnerable. And you will be vulnerable always until you ground yourself in the Word of God, until you abide in the Scriptures. We need to learn the Word of God so that we can become spiritually young men who can protect ourselves and can protect others from being led astray and blown about by every wind of doctrine and carried away by Satan's deceptions. When you get to being a spiritual young man, you will reach a, an exhilarating point in your spiritual experience. But it's nothing like being a spiritual father. That's what John is saying here. It's not just about doctrine. It's not just knowing the facts. As a spiritual father, you know the God who is behind these facts. And you love him more for it. It's not just that you you understand the letter God has given you. It's not that you understand the heart of God who wrote the letter. You, you, You understand the wonderful experience and it cannot be explained. And so John says, look, because you're not fully mature doesn't mean you're not forgiven. And he's reminding us of that. I'm not writing this letter to cause you to doubt your salvation. I'm writing this epistle to cause you to affirm it. Because even a spiritual baby believes in the true Christ. He knows he's a sinner. He wants to obey God. He loves others. He hates the world. And even though it isn't perfection, remember it's direction. What is your direction this morning? What is your direction this morning? Now finally, the power for this progress. What is the power that moves us along? I've already said it. It's the Word of God. How can a spiritual young man become A spiritual father. When you're strong in the word, when you're strong in the word, you're never going to know the God who wrote the word until you know what he wrote. You can't say you love your wife if you never spend time with her. You can't say you love your children and know your children unless you spend time with them. Are you spending time with God in the word, getting to know him? as you go over the Word and you grow deeper and deeper into the Word, you understand the wonderful character of God. And it begins to develop and to grow and to expand in your mind. And the Word is life maturing. We need to grow in this grace. And we need to grow in the knowledge that God has provided for us in His Word. And the Word is transforming. The Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is the bread of life by which we live and by which we grow. May God grant to you the same assurance that inspired the Apostle John to cultivate in us this assurance for Christians who first heard these wonderful words. Let's pray together. O Lord God, we thank you for your word. And how practical it is, Lord, and how sufficient it is. And we know your word is inspired, it is breathed by you, Lord, and you have told us it is profitable. It is profitable for our instruction, it is profitable for our admonition, it is profitable for our instruction and training in righteousness. So, Lord, please humble us this morning that we would be willing to be instructed and trained. By your word. Grant us by your spirit. That we would not be deceived. But that we would be assured. With a true assurance. A blessed assurance. That Jesus is. Ours indeed. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen.